When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Can Paul George win the MVP award? Was it a mistake for the Grizzlies to have a meeting immediately after a bad loss? Does Anthony Davis have a profound effect on the game? The only question left is, say it with me, you win. Sports fans, Coach Nick here, and welcome to the B-Ball Breakdown Podcast. Today, as always, I'm joined by Jared Weiss, who writes for The Athletic, covers a lot of the Celtics and also NBA stuff. And Jared, thank you for joining us today. It's always good to be here, regrettably, under duress. I know. I put a lot of pressure on everybody <laughs> I interact with uh, all day long. But this is what this is what it is, man, to be, you know, to be on the B-Ball Breakdown Podcast. You've got to be able to, you know, handle it, you know, without getting punched, uh, MJ style and, uh, you know, in the middle of a practice. So speaking of which, I don't understand why this whole MJ Hall of Fame speech has triggered so many people for so long. It came up on Twitter yesterday. You know, I don't think it was that bad of a speech. Do you? I think it was quintessential MJ. So I don't I, I don't know why it's back in the uh, on Twitter, which I mean, stuff gets rehashed all the time. Right. But MJ was pure MJ going out. I can't think of anything better than that from the GOAT. Well, you know, and like, you know, he, he called out Stan Van Gundy. If I were, or sorry, Stan, not Stan, uh, Jeff, in a way that, like, I would have been honored to be like, okay, he was that coach that really, like, was was important enough against him to lead him to remember that and mention him in a speech. And I don't know. I, it was weird. I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I, I grew up in Chicago. I grew up going to all the games. And so I, I have some fandom here. But... You know, I also have the distinct ability to separate that from analysis, and I just never understood it. It did come up again because something about LeBron saying he was the greatest of all time, and then someone said that Michael Jordan never really wanted to assume that mantle. He was always very reverent of the Oscar and Jerry and the, and the guys he hadn't played against and Wilt. And I think he was. He had a, a really healthy respect for the game. And so I don't, I don't know if I ever felt that way. And then all of a sudden, the Reggie Miller claims in some story on Kimmel that he called himself Black Jesus. And like I asked everybody I know who was really into Michael and who was a big, you know, into his career, nobody knew what this was. I had to look it up and like, you know, track it down on Google. So I don't know. Well, to be fair, maybe Reggie knows that and no one else does. I I believe it. It's probably true. Anyway, right. I mean, he is yeah. MJ. And, and the context was he tried to talk trash in a in a, an exhibition game in the middle in the first half when Michael was, you know, he wasn't going to take it that seriously as an exhibition. And then he ended up going for 40 on, on Reggie in the second half. And then, you know, you're feeling pretty good about yourself. You, yeah, I guess maybe you might, you might drop that uh, quick. Oh, yeah. Once. Who cares? They're talking trash in a game. Yeah. I mean, you can't say that, like, all the trash talk that's negative doesn't count. But then the positive stuff and self-aggrandizing stuff counts. That's ridiculous. I mean, this right. whole this whole thing with, like, the Braun in uh, the goat thing it's it's another story that again is being completely overblown because it's LeBron I mean I disagree with LeBron like basically what LeBron was saying there is that I pulled off the greatest achievement in NBA history which I think makes me the greatest player ever I think that the general consensus is that to be, your your ranking and your 
you know, whatever, I guess, yeah, your ranking, right? Because that's ranking number one. The ranking is going to be based off of your entire body of work, which you have to come up with some sort of subjective balance between your highest achievement and then your overall body of work and maybe like the core part of your career. And then how long can you really extend it? Can you also be a major contributor at the end of your career and in the beginning of your career, which to MJ's credit, I mean, he had... He won six straight titles and then he walked away. He probably would have won eight straight titles if he hadn't uh, gone to play baseball, quote unquote. So, well, he did literally. But, um, you know, I, I don't disagree with LeBron's reasoning from his perspective. I I don't know if I would consider it to be the best accomplishment ever, but probably if you look at the narrative at the time, which I think was probably still accurate, that the, that Warriors team was the best team ever. I mean, they won the most games. Uh, everybody was calling them the best team ever. So, yeah, I guess... I guess it's true. He he took down what should have been. He pulled off what should have been impossible, um, and it's all thanks to his nuts. So yeah, maybe he deserves to have the crowning, the the great crowning achievement of all time. But he still has a while to go if he really wants to be considered the greatest ever. He needs to continue what he's been doing the last few years over the next four or five years and actually get more rings. I don't think he necessarily has to get six rings, but I think he probably needs to get a, you know, a decent, at least another one, maybe two more for me to put him on the same field as MJ. Even if I maybe think if I wanted to lead a team, I would pick LeBron over MJ, which right. I'm still not certain, certain on, but I feel like I'm leaning LeBron. Interesting. Yeah. And all good points. Um, you know, I just feel like LeBron and you have to split hairs so finely in this argument because they are both one is one. The other one's one a. But, um, yeah. you know, they, were, they just felt like there were enough times in the in different finals where LeBron has disappeared, uh, where like NJ never really did that in finals. And so I kind of look to that as a thing. But other than that, it's like, yeah, of course, in a, in a vacuum, LeBron is a is a better specimen uh, as a basketball player in that respect. But what the, the intangibles that Michael brought, I think I still keep him ahead. But, you know, I'm not, I, I've slowly stopped arguing uh, vociferously uh, that this argument about it. But. But, you know, what we need to talk about right now, I think, uh, is in, in a transition is, you know, the MVP race is heating up uh, a little bit as we get close to the middle of the season. And I think that the dark horse guy, I'm working on a video right now, is Paul George. And I feel like, it, speaking of like this sort of dynamic between, you know, LeBron and Michael, I feel like there's a similar fan dynamic between sort of what Russ does and what like the perceived Russ fan might even say he's allowing Paul George to do. <laughs> yeah. And but great point, really. You know what I mean? But Paul George, he's had such a significant jump in his numbers this year and really impressive all the way across the board that uh, this guy's got to be in the top right now. I would say he's got to be in the top three discussion for MVP. Yeah. Okay. I think I'm on board with that. You know, I three is an arbitrary limiter. I would probably create a tier that would be about five guys right now. And he would be on it. You know, Giannis, LeBron, I think, still has enough games. Uh, probably Curry. And then uh, Kawhi's now getting onto that onto that tier. Anthony Davis, we'll get into that a little bit later. I think he's not on that tier right now just because of the team success, which or lack of success, rather, which is not really his fault necessarily. Um, and then, uh, who am I forgetting? James Harden. Indeed. Oh, yeah, that guy. Well, and then, yeah, Embiid. and Embiid, I think Embiid is starting to climb onto that tier with the way that he's been playing lately. So yeah, the, uh, the so you got was that six guys there on that yeah. on that tier? And right now, I don't think there's much to separate them. In that, I think Giannis maybe 
you combine the numbers with the team record, and he's the one that probably separates the most. But MVP for me should be mostly a feel thing rather than a number thing, just because there's so much context there. Yeah. Um, but in in I mean, a couple years ago when it was like LeBron, Harden, Westbrook, and Kawhi all up there, I think there, it was much easier to compare the numbers. And you know, Russ ended up winning, which I disagreed with at the time. I thought it should have been Harden or Kawhi, and. I think everybody kind of regret realized that pretty pretty soon after when they saw just how meaningless the triple double average is because Russ is still averaging a triple double this year, I believe he still is as of recording, and Paul George is clearly the MVP of that team, and oh yeah, George is, George has been really efficient. He his defense seems to have stepped up to another level. He was already an All Defensive Player, and right now he could end up winning Defensive Player of the Year. I think if you called it right now. And he's now he's starting to score 30-plus points pretty consistently. He's passing the ball very well. He's a very willing and aware passer. And he's getting like 8 to 10 rebounds a game too. So just the counting stats have become pretty remarkable. But the way that he carries a team, the way that he plays off of Russ, and you know, as you were saying, I mean, it is kind of a legitimate thing to say, is that Russ is not so much letting him play off of him, but that Russ is really embracing the partnership that they have. And it seems like, you know, George is reaching the level that KD was at when KD was really playing at his best and OKC almost won the title a couple times. Right. Uh, I, I agree. I mean, they're, they're finding something here and they're, you know, the defense is stifling and their offense is can be overwhelming at times. And you look at his game, he's always had a very varied game where he would score in so many a variety of ways. It was always off screens and he would ISO and then he would pick and roll and he would spot up uh, and all very well balanced. And so one thing I found really interesting this year was that uh, traditionally he when he would come off screens and he would do that a lot more than most of the top scorers in the league. Um, which is that a typical action save for like you know Kyle Korver role player kind of guy, but um, he used to come off on the right side of the floor, going to his left to catch it. So his right hip and right elbow are already aligned to the basket. He was you know most righties like to go to their left when they catch it and shoot it. Uh, it and it's a really strange reversal where all of his scores now on off screen or almost all of them are on either like are out of baseline of bounce plays, and going both directions right and left. And they've really seemed to have gone away from that action in their offense. And I'm really kind of fascinated by that because it seems like it would be a, you know, a decision that they made before the year started to like not do that as much. And, and then, you know, and, and the uptick, and I can see is only when you look at synergy, is only in transition. Everything else seems kind of similar. So it's a really interesting, you know, subtle shift in how he's scoring. And look, you can't argue the results. Yeah, well, there's... I think he still gets a decent amount of baskets going right to left. Like there's still that play where I think it'll be like Russell coming down the left side and then Steven Adams will set a drag screen for George to come around and catch and shoot at the top of the key. So he gets a lot of that and he still loves to even go, you know, kind of attack from the top left side and then do the mm -hmm. crossover step back to shoot it from the top of the key. So he, he, he likes, he still likes to work going right to left, but I think it's I think what you're saying what you're seeing there is kind of that late career or maybe not late career but like pr middle of the prime maturation process where a guy is able to break out of his kind of like usual go-to moves and really expand it and reach that level where I think that's kind of what really defines your prime as a great player is that you go from beyond your signature moves and your usual stuff to being able to run that from either side of the floor and be able to shoot from either wing spot. And I mean, he always could kind of do it, 
but th- there was a lot of predictability to the way that he would attack in the past, but it was just that his like crossover step back move is so unbelievably good that nobody could really stop it. So he's definitely turned the corner there and, you know, they like to work him out of the high post a lot now on the left side, which mm-hmm. I don't remember him doing that much when he was in Indiana. I think it was mostly on the right block. And so a lot of the time he'll just like fly down court and try to get like early positioning on a seal on the post up and Russell just you know fling it out to him. And he's able to kind of go to work while the defense is getting back. And I feel like he's getting a lot of his points just from that beyond the usual kind of just like sprinting and transition kind of stuff that they do with him and Russ attacking, you know, full head of steam. Sure. I, I do see that a little bit. And, um, you know, it, it's just interesting because because of how well all this is working now, whatever they've unlocked. And, you know, clearly Russ has always struggled, certainly with efficiency. And he's having another one of his typical like synergy hates Russell Westbrook. He is generally rated very poor um, in overall efficiency there. And he's you know, this is this, this year is particularly it's tr- uh, struggling. But you're right. He's still putting up the numbers and they're and they're winning. And they're winning about maybe a little bit more than people thought they were. So that's another thing. And I don't know if anyone's going to really want to play them in the playoffs because of that. And what's what's the status with Robertson? Is he coming back soon or no? It's he's out indefinitely still, I believe. Roberson, yeah. by the way. But yeah, he um oh no, it's Robertson. Is there is it Roberson? Okay. Well, yeah. I'm still gonna call him Roberson anyway. He's care. been out but, for so long we've forgotten that. It, yeah, that I thing. think he's still out indefinitely, but they were like hoping that he would come back in March. But I can't remember if that was before the setback or not. So yeah, either way, I think they should assume that he's not going to be back this year, which they don't need him, obviously, to uh, right. to have an elite defense. But there's nothing wrong with adding, you know, one of the best defenders in the NBA. But also, don't forget, he was, you know, he was an offensive player that could do pretty much nothing except for sometimes hit the spot up corner shot. And I can't imagine his defense is going to be that great when he returns from this injury. So he might not be a very useful player for them even when he returns. Right. Fair enough. Well, we'll have to keep our eye on that. But I'm, I'm still, I'm still delighted to see the, the progression of Paul George, and I really feel like he needs to be in the conversation. That said, uh, it's Giannis's award to lose because uh, no one would have predicted Milwaukee being first place in the East and be such a formidable foe so early. Uh, with, with your Celtics not doing as well as everyone thought, uh, <laughs> although uh, that's coming back a little bit too, perhaps. Although they're not, they're still what five and five in the last ten games, but we're seeing some a resurgence from uh, Gordon Hayward. But nonetheless, it's uh, Giannis probably ends up is the front runner for that i've already done that video though so i got this is my next video i gotta do so we'll keep your eye on that and we'll come right back after the break if you've ever watched movies like wolf of wall street and wondered what it would be like to invest your money then you've got to try an investing app called Robinhood that lets you buy and sell stocks etfs options and cryptos all commission free i've been using Robinhood for a little while It's really intuitive and easy to understand, with tons of good information to help you make decisions on what to invest in. In just four taps, you can make a trade without a charge, unlike other brokerages that could charge you 10 bucks per trade. So, you can keep all your profits. If you're not that familiar with the market, and trust me, I'm a novice, you can easily get started with Robinhood. And best of all, wait for it, Robinhood is giving away a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint, to help build your portfolio. Sign up at breakdown.robinhood.com so you can start. You'll get a free stock by signing up, so head on over to breakdown.robinhood.com. And we're back to talk about the Memphis Grizzlies, who had an interesting uh, situation after the game last night where they played the Pistons and got beats. 
Uh, they had a big fight, it sounded like. Or they had an airing out of things in a meeting, and then it, it's escalated into some sort of physicality. So we had uh, Garrett Temple versus Omri Caspi. Uh, what are your thoughts on this one, Jared? Oh, Omri Caspi seems to be at the center of attention when it comes to things not working out for a lot of teams lately. Um, you know, it, him getting into a, a spat with Garrett Temple is pretty significant because Garrett Temple probably one of the most popular guys in the league. He's the vice president of the Players Union Executive Committee. Uh, he, he's a guy that all these teams keep sought, keep seeking out as that positive leader in the locker room. So that tells me that, one, Caspi definitely is not going to be winning this argument. Apparently, according to Shams Tranya at The Athletic, is that Caspi was kind of upset that during this team meeting, that there was a lot of uh, criticism of the lack of enthusiasm from the bench. And he became pretty defensive over that. And Garrett Temple, among apparently others, were not very happy about that. I mean, the fact that the two of them fought it makes me think that Temple probably told him, like, go F yourself. Or, like, you got to step it up. And Caspi, you know, came at him. But I don't know. Maybe Temple did come at him. Uh, but you know, either way... This seems like a situation where they can just remove Caspi from the equation and they can just do the classic, you know, get rid of the player when he's causing fights in the locker room uh, mm -hmm. fix. And they can get rid of Caspi and it's not going to really affect their bottom line too much. He hasn't made that big of a difference. Temple's starting and he's averaging, what, like 10 points a game. So he's playing pretty decently. So I wouldn't be surprised if they just let go of Caspi. I mean, you look at other fights in the locker room in recent memory. I mean, there was the obviously Bobby Portis taking out Nikola Miritich, and that played out pretty interestingly where Miritich was the one saying, I want to get out of here, and they traded him away. And, of course, Miritich has turned out to be a pretty phenomenal player since he left there, although I guess he's gotten cold. But I don't think Caspi is really a risk for them if for coming back to bite them there. But Bakerstaff's got to get control of this locker room because we saw last year the locker room had a major issue where uh, Fizz and Gasol had a falling out and Fizz lost that one. Bakerstaff doesn't want to lose this one. Bakerstaff is known as a player's coach. He's got to prove it here. This is his chance to kind of establish himself as a really effective player's coach and write the ship for a team that has been falling out of the playoffs and they very much want to make the playoffs because if they don't, I mean, their pick is top eight protected this year, I think, and Boston actually has it. So unless they're going to fall off a cliff and become a terrible team, and then they have to trade Gasol at that point. Um, I know Mike Conley's been mentioned as a potential trading block guy. One, they're not going to get a player better than Mike Conley out there. Mike Conley is one of the best players in the league. And two, his contract makes him pretty much untradeable. I don't think I can't really think of a team out there that wants to pick up a point guard at his age that's getting paid that much, even if he is a really, really good player. Um, it, it, let's not get crazy here. He's not like I don't think he's the best, one of the best players in the league anymore, right? He, he's often injured, and he really, you know, and he's, he's injured last night and he hurt his shoulder and he couldn't perform. He didn't score for the first time in years. Um, you know what I mean? So I mean, listen, let's look at his numbers real quick: nineteen point nine points, six point three assists. Uh, he shoots 34% from the three on six attempts a game. So, you know, he's good. He's a top, what, 10, 11, 12 point guard? Yeah, and I'm sorry. I meant uh, one of the top point guards in the league, not players in the league. He's probably a top 30 player, maybe around that. Um, okay. But he's, you know, he's a guy that you can, I mean, they've shown that they can build a playoff team with him as their offensive choreographer along with Gasol. Uh, but they're, you know, they're such a unique team. I don't know how many other places that works out. 
Um, hey, maybe they want to trade him to Washington for John Wall. That would be an interesting one. Probably, probably not at this point. Let's say you know, unless they want to completely tank and they think that Wall is going to come back from surgery. Fine, uh, that would be an interesting idea. I probably would do that if I were them, actually, just because of the age difference. But they, um, yeah, I mean, Bickerstaff's either got to nip this in the bud real quick, which Chris Wallace came out today and said that they were really upset that this got out and that they're going to handle internal discipline internally. So I'm sure that will get out as well. Who knows? Or maybe <laughs> right. someone's about to get fired. I don't know. But um, well, I, you know, I think the moral, the moral of this story, though, from a coaching perspective, and it would be, I don't think it's a great idea to have a team meeting like this immediately after an emotional loss. I feel like I know. I mean, I had a rule on this, and I'm on a completely other level of where a level where I coach. But we had a rule where we wouldn't, I wouldn't let a like a parent call me the night of a game. If you wanted to have a discussion with me about something, it had to be the next day, and that was for a reason. When the emotions are riding so high, and I feel like this is a very similar situation. Now, maybe it got out of hand where he couldn't control it, and they're like, "Well, here it goes. We're going to have to have this have it because they already are starting to have it." But um, to me, it's a it's a pretty good uh, it, 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 example of what you don't want to do there, especially in that situation. And that's what you know. As it escalated, we found out. You know, if if some of the players start to perceive that Bickerstaff didn't you know comport himself the way they wanted him to. In the midst of this, uh, you know, argument, whatever, you know, that's a, that's an erosion of trust and erosion of his ability to coach uh, unnecessarily. So th- th- he should be pretty damn concerned that this is going to become you know, a bigger issue. Which is why, yeah, maybe they just if they get rid of Caspi, that would probably be a good vote of confidence in Bickerstaff. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think there should be. I think Bickerstaff's done a pretty good job this year. And I mean, a lot of, you know, a lot of teams go through a pretty bad slump and then if they pull themselves out of it, I think it's even more credit to the strength of the coach. And like that, that team has been overachieving for the talent that they have. And there's no question about that. Yeah. And it's been a really pleasant surprise all season long. We kind of were looking earlier at their schedule to try and figure out, well, was it an easy schedule that gave them a, gave them a good record at the beginning? And no, they had some quality wins in there as well. So it wasn't like they were just feasting on Atlanta and, um, and, and, and the Phoenix. So, um, so there, there's some quality stuff there. And I, you're right. With guys like Gasol and um, Conley, you should be in a lot of those games and be very competitive no matter what. Um, and I like Temple. I like, you know, some of the things we like, uh, you know, um, J- Jaron Jackson Jr. He's going to be terrific, too. They have good pieces. So it's just a question of, um, you know, can they get those guys experienced enough? And can they get these jailed? And can they keep freaking Conley on the court? I mean, I think that's going to be the biggest issue they're going to have the rest of the year. Yeah. And I mean, Bickerstaff is trying to downplay it. ESPN had uh, some, I can't remember who reported it, but. Uh, they had a source saying that it was a heat of the moment kind of thing and that they're able to walk away from it. So, I mean, that's damage control, obviously. But it's like at least they have an easy scapegoat for the situation. It doesn't necessarily fix all their problems. And there's a reason why they're having that team meeting. And I'm pretty sure it's beyond just Omri Caspi. But, uh, and, you know, don't forget that they had they had their botched trade that didn't go through. And I'm sure Marshawn Brooks is probably not a happy camper right now either. Right. Oh, I know. No one's a happy camper right now. Dylan Brooks is probably not so happy, you know, and that whole thing. So, yeah. Uh, so we'll have to we'll just have to keep our eye on it. I hope they can get it together because I love I like their team. And I I, mean, I like the grit and grind thing I like, especially because it sort of flies in the face of what everyone thinks is the only way to win the NBA this year or in, you know, going forward. Uh, the very slow pace. They don't shoot a lot of threes. 
Um, and, and that yet they were grinding out and winning. So I would like to see somebody be able to defend that style and, and, as a way of still making it work, just for the sake of, you know, it's not, there's not one way to do anything, uh, and we'll see how that works. Do you think it still keeps a low ceiling on their you know potential, even just going forward, building this team up, trying to acquire more offensive talent? Because like right now, besides Jackson, who do they have that's going to be like that core guy that they build a future around? I can't really think of anyone i mean dylan brooks will be right. a good rotation player for a long time but there's nobody else really that stands out right are you saying like are they trying to lure some a free agent who wants to come to play their style and that no one's going to like to come there i don't think that exists i don't think there's right. a i don't I think, think there's a free agent is, to build around yeah you know? I, well and i also think that memphis itself I, by the way memphis is a great place it's a great city but i, I think that they're already that's already enough of a deterrent i feel like compared to other, other places that uh, free agents want to go that uh the, the way they play might not necessarily affect that. But, um, no, I, I don't know. It, it's not necessarily clear. Now, in theory, like, if they're short on talent, then, oh, we better shoot some more threes and get some variability going here and see if we can get hot. Um, so there's an argument to that as well. But, um, you know, sometimes if you're taking threes just for the sake of taking threes, and I'm, I'm going to do a video on that too, uh, it, it works uh, against that. You know, I did a thing where, uh, you know, going up and down as quickly as you can, a high pace does not equate to a high offensive rating or wins. So, um, you know, and we, I think, I think Haberstroh did something the other last week or two weeks ago about that with threes as well. Increasing three-point attempts does not necessarily mean you're going to win more games. So, um, you know, it's an interesting conundrum they have, and hopefully they can get it uh, sorted out. By the way, if they could trade for Bradley Beal somehow, would, would you do it? If you were, if you were I, yeah. them, like, I, I can't even see, I can't even find a package that would make sense because they don't have their pick. So, oh, right. I'm, try, I'm well, trying to think of what it could be, but, you know, Brooks and, um, yeah, they would not do Jackson. So that's not going to happen. But that would be what the, the Wizards would want. Um, yeah. I don't think, I don't think that works. I would like to see Bradley Beal on another team. That, if that's what you're asking me, I'd love to see him get out of there, out of that situation and just be a, a, a better player in a better situation for sure. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to take the podcast into a Wizards pod, but I mean, you yeah. know, the they're Washington's going about it the wrong way. We, I think, we've already touched on this. Beal and Ubre were their two best, you know, long term assets, and they got rid of Ubre for a short term gain that has no long term value, pretty much in Ariza, no pick or anything. It was kind of insane. They would, they would have been way better off if they got Dylan Brooks. I still can't believe they somehow didn't. I, I mean, I'd rather have Ariza than Marshawn Brooks, frankly, but. Right. I'm not sure. I mean, I just don't understand what's happening there. But no, all right. Well, I don't uh, think I don't well, think Ernie Grenfell does either. <laughs> right. Well, and speaking of another guy in the hot seat, uh, but let's move on to our last uh, discussion piece, which is on AD, because I think I need some help here. Um, listen, he's a Hall of Fame player. His numbers are as good as anyone's across the board. But I just can't seem to help when I watch the Pelicans play, having that sense of uh, emptiness. And for instance, he had a monster game last night. And they lose to the Nets. I know it was on the road, but it was to the Nets. Uh, the Nets had control for much of the game. And I'm just wondering if you could help me figure out exactly what the problem is here with why his game doesn't seem to affect the outcome as well as it should based on the numbers. Lack of perimeter playmaking around him, probably. I, okay. I mean, Drew, Drew Holiday has been great this year and probably will be an all-star, hopefully will be an all-star. And then it's kind of it for them. Everybody else on that team is a is an you know an accent player who doesn't 
create their own shot. They're a little, lo- they're just a little bit low on shot creation. And Julius Randall, I guess to his credit, has been doing really well lately. But it's been kind of up and down for him. That obviously turned out to be a great signing. But you know, it, there, I think the question about AD is kind of just a question about where does the big man fit at the top of the hierarchy in the NBA, and how do you win with a big man as the centerpiece of your offense? And you know, AD is a guy that. You know, we don't really, I don't think it's really talked about enough in that AD kind of lives in the mid range a lot. I mean, a lot of his shots are fadeaways from the mid post, spot ups from 18 feet out. You know, you know to, to credit Cat, Miles Turner, Joel Embiid to a degree, Jokic, obviously, like all those guys are playing from behind the three point line, and Davis doesn't really seem to be doing it. He's kind of, he's kind of turned into a glorified LaMarcus Aldridge, which is, also basically Kevin Garnett, which is, you know, is an elite player, top five, maybe, or, you know, top seven to five player in the league. But do you win? Can you, like, can you get past the second round of the playoffs playing that way? And right. for him, it means he has to score 45 points a game, basically for it to happen. And I mean, it just, it make he makes life difficult for himself. And with his stature, it tends to be easier than usual. But I think there are just there's so many other elite offensive players and even elite two way players that can pull off most of what he pulls off, but they can do it in a more efficient manner that works better for the offense because so many of his baskets are, you know, are basically isolation, whether it's a post up or it's a spot up play. It's mostly the offense watching him work and he doesn't really play make from the perimeter. So it's either him diving in a pick and roll, him scoring in transition, which he gets a ton of, and he's amazing at doing it. But this is kind of the same issue we were talking about with Ben Simmons, although it's not nearly at that degree. It's just, you know, it's in nowadays in the NBA, it's really hard to consistently win against great switching defenses if your best scorer can't play make from the outside. Right. Uh, it's interesting because here's the other thing. You know, I, I kind of don't think it's the offense. They're third in offensive rating right now, but they're 26th on defense. Mm-hmm. And what that might be the biggest issue because maybe, you know, I know we're talking about a guy who's traditionally more of a post player and not a perimeter guy like KD and those guys. But, he, I mean, listen, like how much – he can't score. I mean, he's almost 30 a game. He's 14 rebounds. He's all he's, but, but perhaps what is also leading me to feel empty is the defensive side where he isn't making plays. Now, he's getting a ton of blocks. Let's see here. Uh, last I checked here, he was getting, yeah, almost you know two and a half blocks a game, 2.6. But a lot of times, you know, there's guys who get blocked shots who don't ultimately aren't that effective uh, defending the rim. And – I got to we got dive into some more numbers here, but there's something about that too, where clearly, um, and, and maybe that's where you would ultimately feel his dominance because he is so long, because he is so fast. You you should feel it more. And aside from the occasional block that he does get, you know, there are times when you know the guys are laying it up on him and over him and around him, and that might ultimately be the issue here that will will probably also doom Alvin Gentry. Yeah, I mean, you know, part part of it is like as a team they don't force like any turnovers, I think they're 26th in turnover percentage allowed. Mm -hmm. So the, you know, the only teams that, okay, so it's Philly, Portland are the two good, decent defenses that are down in that area. And then Milwaukee doesn't really force uh, that many turnovers, Um, but they also don't let anyone ever get to the free throw line. So they're able Mm -hmm. to mitigate it that way. Uh, But I think New Orleans is defensive. Just they're they get picked apart pretty easily. 
their communication isn't that great, which is ironic because they have two of the best defenders in the league in Drew Holiday and uh, Anthony Davis. Right. Although I guess we have to reconsider considering how poor their defense is overall. Um, I think it's probably just that it's Gentry's teams have never really been good defensively. Um, they have Darren Ehrman, I believe, on staff there, who's always been a really good defensive coach. Used to, I know him from back when he was in Boston a long time ago. But, I mean, they, they have the staff in place. They have the point, you know, the head of the snake and the center behind him are both elite defenders there. So there's doesn't really make clear sense why they don't defend well, especially because they also have Etwan Moore out there a lot of the time, who I've always felt is a really good wing defender. Yeah. So there's maybe no clear answer. Probably a lot of it is simply just that they suck at help side defense. They their communication probably isn't that great. I mean, the last game I watched from them, I just saw AD was kind of getting pulled out of the paint a lot of the time and getting a little bit lost, and they were able to get around him. So, I mean, AD, I think, is an, is an unbelievable defender on the ball. And when he has, you know, when he has the ball that has the play in front of him, there's nothing you can do. But his, you know, his awareness probably isn't as good as some of the other elite defenders. Right, and and maybe even his intensity. He glides around out there in a very smooth way, but it's like sometimes you need to be have more force where you with 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 way you move and the way you are able to uh, hold position. And so uh, it's a real it's a real issue there. And if they can't fix that, especially because of the personnel, you're right. Drew Holiday is a very good defender. Anthony Davis should be a terrific defender. Each one more. I mean, they have these guys. Um, who who are good defenders and the other role players? You know, certainly it's not lack of effort on their end when they're out there trying to stop guys. So um, that is a problem that reflects, unfortunately. Oh, by the way, Alfred Payton is another good defender. Generally, mm-hmm. uh, he yeah. certainly but, is a guy who's. But Rand- energy Randall's man. Randall's had a lot of defensive lapses over the years, and I think it's funny because Randall's the kind of guy that if you go and you watch him one game, you might think he's like an elite two way player, but then all the time people are complaining about how bad his defense is. So right. I think there's a lot that I'm not seeing because I don't watch every game. But one thing that I've noticed with Davis that I think is a little bit that sticks out more compared to other elite defenders is that he doesn't get low in the stance nearly as much as he should, uh, especially when he's defending kind of on the weak side, even when he's in the paint. He has kind of a high center of gravity. He's not low and wide very much. And like I, I've, I feel like that defensive technique is really lost. It's kind of one of the lost arts in the modern NBA is that guys aren't really physically engaged and ready. They're kind of standing up lazily. They're not, and it makes their reaction speed slow. It makes them, you know, it, it means that they can't, they can't turn or not only can they not react to whatever their guy that's guarding them is doing as quickly, but also if you're, if you're kind of like, if you're standing maybe guarding the weak side corner, like let's say Anthony Davis is guarding, you know, somewhere on the weak side where he's kind of pulled out of the paint. If he's in the, if he's kind of low and wide, he's got that one foot right there, ready to turn his ability to turn and counteract the drive coming from the strong side is way different than if he's just kind of standing next to his guy with a hand on him, standing up straight. I mean, especially at his, at his length, you can either cover two feet of space or you can cover seven feet of space, depending on just how ready and engaged he is. And I feel like he does it a lot less than some of the other best centers in the league. For sure. Well, great points all. And you covered a lot more than seven feet uh, of the NBA today in our discussion. So thank you so much for that, Jared. And, um, we'll have to kind of see what's going to happen. But again, is it safe to say if we wrap this up that, uh, Gentry's on the hottest of hottest seats in the NBA right now? 
I don't think so, because I think Del Dem should be the one on the hot seat, not necessarily Gentry. I don't see what firing Gentry does for keeping Anthony Davis unless they think they can literally turn into a contender by getting rid of him. And how often does a team turn into a contender by getting rid of their coach midseason? Besides yeah, Ty Lue with Cleveland. It's it's pretty yeah. – and it's not like – you know, it, with, with uh, Blatt and Cleveland, it was just a massive personality clash between him and – Really, the rest of the team, but especially LeBron, there was just there were so many issues there. While Gentry doesn't have any of that with AD, and AD seems to really love Gentry, so I, I don't I don't see any way that that really changes things for them. Fair enough. Well, we'll have to keep our eye on that one. And thank you so much for coming on the show tonight, Jared. And thank you all out there for listening to the podcast today. And don't forget, sports fans, at B-Ball Breakdown, not a channel, we're a conversation. You in? You in, Jared? I'm out. <laughs>